COVID-19 revealed the global supply chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. Calls to rethink globalization predate the coronavirus, though. Has the pandemic accelerated this move to a new way of doing business, like the old way? Meet Dan Kiriak. He is a fellow in residence at the C.D. Howe Institute and is the director and principal at Kiriak Consulting in Ottawa. At the Trade Policy Research Forum webinar, Dan told the audience that the model of a global supply chain is under attack. He joins us now for his insight. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Michael. Decoupling, reshoring, nearshoring, friendshoring. How much of this is tied to COVID-19 and how much of it would you say is tied to ideology? Well, I think the COVID impact surely triggered a lot of rethinking about how we have organized our supply chains. And that's not unusual. We have had previous shocks to due to natural events such as the Fukushima earthquake in Japan, there were um, a, a major flooding in Thailand back in 2010-11, which uh, interrupted uh, computer uh, supply chains. Each of those events caused companies that are involved in these international uh, global value chains as part of their uh, business model to ensure that they, in fact, had um, the backup uh, sort of systems to stay active uh, in the face of, uh, of shocks. Now, the pandemic was hugely unusual in the fact that it wasn't localized. It started in China, shut down China for a few months, then it hit uh, Europe, and then it hit North America. And the rolling uh, uh, wave of, of close downs of factories and interruption of uh, work as people were hospitalized or you know stuck at home uh, is just something that was unprecedented for a highly globalized uh, production system. So this has definitely was uh, sort of a kicker to uh, start us thinking about just how vulnerable these supply chains are. And then, of course, you have the uh, technology uh, and trade wars that uh, followed on. And uh, that was, uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure which was the shot and which was the chaser, but uh, it certainly uh, has uh, left... Uh, the system, uh, you know, it, it, big time uncertain about where things go. And uh, that's, I guess, the point of, of my paper for CD Howe is to try and think this through. So is the shot in the chaser giving us, a, to extend the metaphor, a hangover? <laughs> there is definitely a hangover. Um, now, what I would say, uh, Michael, is that the Ultimately, the made-in-the-world production system that was developed over uh, decades, um, and, and, and which was kind of discussed in the um, WTO uh, trade agreement, actually responded very well to the shocks of, of, of COVID. Um, it's, you know, for a small open economy like Canada, and, and much more so for even smaller economies, we don't have the capability of being of producing everything that we need for ourselves. Now, there, it would be nice to have perhaps just at that instant to have had a greater vaccine manufacturing capability than we uh, had. It might have been great for even the United States, which is a very large economy, to have had, to have had more face mask manufacturing capability than it had at that very moment. But when you get past the immediate shock, 
then the uh, the idea that somehow you should rejig your economy into be all things for yourself to prevent a future such uh, sort of disruption that then sort of uh, it becomes you know uh, it's, it's setting stark reality to that you know in in the in the states when they did actually uh, uh, bump up their production of face masks immediately after the uh, crisis passed, the, the new face mask production capability was facing price competition from uh, China because they no longer were shut down. They were exporting the masks that they had previously been using for themselves. And so the American producers were now asking for trade protection. So you have to think not just the immediate shock, but the, over the you know the, the aftermath. And this is the hangover you're talking about, Michael. Is that you know the ultimately the trade in, made in the world production system worked very well all, overall, especially when you considered how unusual the COVID shock was. Well, this sort of ties into the idea that one of the arguments against a global supply chain is that the good jobs were shipped offshore to low-wage competitors. And the counter-argument is often that Western economies grew from agrarian to industrial to now information-based economies, and that the wealth of these economies prove that an evolution is as natural in a society and an economy as it is in the natural world. What are your thoughts on that? So, yeah, I mean, uh, ultimately, uh, there's a division of labor. Uh, Canada, for example, produces about 2.5 to 3% of global output. Uh, and we have our advantages, comparative advantages in certain things. Ultimately, that turns out to be uh, heavily resource-based. And so we sell that stuff to the rest of the world, and we import all the stuff, that, all the good stuff that, that's produced out there. Um, we produce computers by growing canola. And, okay, that's the way it works. So now the question is for the West at large, right? Should it have retained more manufacturing uh, capability or capacity uh, in order to, uh, say, to, to be prepared for the supply shock that happened because of COVID? I would argue that in the, if with the several months that we face a disruption, we might have said that, geez, that would have been a nice idea. But after you get six months past and a year past the shock, two years past the shock, everything, uh, again, reverts to the optimal structure, which says that we are part of a, of a trading community that made the world extraordinarily wealthy. It's not just ourselves that got wealthy with this, Michael. China became a $75 trillion net worth economy through its participation in the global division of labor, they started out as entirely manufacturing pretty much. And, and they had a surplus of, of trade in manufacturing. They had a big deficit in trade on uh, services and an even larger deficit on intellectual property payments. Um, in tw 2021, China became the world's leading market for sales of, of intellectual property you know, licenses or royalty piece, they pass the United States and how much money they're paying into the world, uh, to the world for uh, IP. So, I mean, we, as, as a producer of knowledge, we benefit from that as well. So the question is, should we try and have a, an economy that mirrors our consumption pattern, or should we have an economy that is largely based on our comparative advantage? 
It, it sounds though like the 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 answer is is quite simple. The genie, the the globalization genie, is out of the bottle, and that there's no way to go back. To your point about the the COVID masks, we could produce certain things. It will cost more, and if we want to keep producing them, that's going to require more trade barriers and a shrinking of the world, not an expansion of it. Ultimately, cutting into our own wealth. That's absolutely correct. Uh, and and just again to to uh, kind of underscore the uh, interrelationships between countries, you may recall that uh, as the face mask crisis hit, that uh, President Donald J. Trump uh, ordered that the American uh, uh, producers of face masks stop shipping to Canada. And then he was uh, uh, politely reminded by, I believe it was 3M Corporation, that, um, by the way, Mr. President, the, uh, the fine pulp that we use to produce those face masks comes from Canada. <laughs> you know, so again, the interdependence is there. And ultimately, I think in the West, while there was a bit of me firstism kind of for, for some weeks, uh, by and large, the West came to its senses in that regard, and we continue to trade and to share in the pain of, of uh, facing inadequate supplies temporarily to save the system. But while the policies of Donald J. Trump may have led to eyebrows being raised, it the follow-on administration is also engaging to a degree in reshoring and, and things of that nature. I, I'm asking you if there's a limit to the public's tolerance for reshoring, because the cost of making an iPhone in Alabama versus China must be significantly higher, and those costs would get passed on to the consumer. That's absolutely correct. I mean, we we make uh, our um, uh, or we extract benefits from the trading system in two ways. One way is that we participate in the production and therefore get paid higher wages. The second way is that the price of the stuff that we buy falls. Either way, we're getting a benefit. And ultimately, you've got myriad firms, you know, uh, tens of thousands of trading firms, which uh, find their uh, best optimal way to produce their products to get them to market. Apple, for example, relies heavily on China for because China developed the very complicated supply uh, chains that, that support the production of iPhones there. They're trying to move some of that to India and we'll see how well that works because it's one thing to move assembly. It's another thing to move the entire supply chain. And uh, the Chinese economy and the Indian economies are just very different uh, when you look at their fine structure. So, and of course that's the same is true for Alabama versus, uh, so you know, uh, uh, Shanghai or Guangzhou, uh, you, it's very, very difficult to replicate these um, these uh, intricate structures that are devised not by governments, but by tens of thousands of firms entering into individual contracts with suppliers and uh, building trust, you know, determining, ma making sure that they've got the right specifications for their products and putting in place the capacity to produce just in time, the right amount, the right product for the right customer, uh, that is very, very hard to do. And it's very hard for uh, to have that rejigged based upon some dictum from a government. Well, let's expand on that because the decoupling of the semiconductor industry from China, returning it to the United States or its allies, 
It is seen as a geopolitical move to lessen the power of China more than giving an unemployed Alabama resident a new skill and an income. So let's define the Sullivan Doctrine in the United States and what it means to the country's ability to defend its lead in critical next generation technologies. You've called this the weaponization of supply chains. Yes, it is. Now, so um, traditionally, when you've had a new technology hit the market, uh, there is a, there are enormous economic benefits to capturing you know the the, the production of that new technology, uh, and of course uh, the artificial intelligence is the big one the the new kid on the block and it is big in every possible way. Uh, back around 2018 or so, the Americans realized that China's technological advance was threatening to uh, move it ahead. And, and this was particularly in 5G networks, fifth generation telecommunications networks, but in other respects as well. Um, and so the, the Americans moved to defend their advantage. The interesting thing about the Sullivan Doctrine is not just to maintain an advantage over China, sort of say one or two generations ahead, which was the traditional uh, way that the uh, United States had operated when there was something that was really major for it, both economically and in geopolitical terms. But the Sullivan Doctrine now says, because it's, this is not just a question of, of capturing economic lead, it's existential from a military perspective because of the dual use characteristics of artificial intelligence. So now they they have redefined this uh, their doctrine is to maximize the uh, the the gap between the U.S. and China, and they did weaponize the supply chain for the for the production of uh, AI specific kinds of chips. So that meant that they denied China access to the leading edge lithography machines, to the leading edge uh, software systems, and so on and so forth. Um, and that then is leading to unnecessary bifurcation of supply chains, one which will be supplying the West and one which will be supplying China, because China, from its perspective, has to then make those, you know, literally hundreds of billions of dollars worth of investments to replicate the supply chain that is now being denied them. Now, that by the same token, you've got now uh, the uh, companies that are producing, uh, 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 you know, these systems have to have a system, a way to operate in China because that's the biggest market for semiconductors and the biggest market for these systems and also stay profitable in the West. And to stay profitable in the West appears to require the hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidies that are in, contained in the Inflation Reduction Act uh, in the States and the CHIPS Act. So it's, this will be an expensive proposition for the West. And as you said, Michael, the question will be what ultimately does this mean for the price of the iPhone or the price of other uh, uh, products which rely on these uh, semiconductors and will the consumer tolerance and how will that, that unfold? Is there a history that we can turn to to understand what the implications are? Well, to my way of thinking, Michael, what we've seen, uh, the, the, the relevant history actually on the um, technological competition is uh, China's progress up the technology curve. Uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, one of them was that they were excluded from uh, the uh, International Space Station and they moved on their space program independently. They have since landed a Mars rover they have also landed a rover on the 
dark side of the moon and brought back samples. Uh, they have built their own international space station. It's a smaller version of the one uh, that, that we have, uh, but they have actually done all that uh, and their progress continues. So there's one example. Uh, on civilian aircraft, they finally got, after many, many delays, they got their civilian aircraft on this maiden commercial flight. The uh, civilian aircraft is probably the single most complicated product that is that we've ever produced. It's just that, you know, just that many components, that many systems to make sure that flies uh, sort of reliably. So, and it took them a while, but they, they also mastered that. If you were to look at automobiles, when they started on automobiles, they had a huge quality deficiency. It takes about a decade, but they are now uh, uh, at the, you know, uh, cutting edge in terms of quality of, of automobile production. Um, they put in place the systems to develop technology. Um, and they, as, as I, I mentioned, they are now the leading importer of technology. So they're buying it up like crazy at a time when they're facing sanctions. Think about that. I mean, those sanctions aren't stopping them from buying technology. So they proved they can, they can do it. The question is, uh, will this strategy by the United States, how long will it last? My guess is, uh, give China, uh, maybe, you know, uh, five to, to 10 years, they will catch up eventually. And then the real question for me always is what will be the tenor of the relationship at the end of that process? And, um, when they are actually caught up and that, that is the interesting question. So then is politically motivated friendshoring a bit of a mugs game? You know, the United States encouraged a shift in production of goods and services from China to India considering Washington's support of Ukraine in the Russian invasion and India's close relationship with Moscow, is it just a, a frying pan fire situation? Well, that one there, I, th I think, is, you know, uh, th there were a number of, of attempts made to uh, uh, repatriate supply chains out of China. Japan, for example, offered uh, quite a, a large sum of money to its firms to, to move stuff out of China. And of course, the Americans sort of uh, tried to motivate the uh, shipment or, or, the, or the relocation of production out of China into um, India, Vietnam, and also the point. The problem there is is twofold. As I mentioned, the the underlying substrate uh, or supply structure for any industry uh, evolves over time to support that specific industry. So when you take you know, the, 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 say, semiconductors depends on chemical industries, on plastics, on a whole bunch of other different industries, which are then present locally and sort, you know, to be able to supply the, the ultimate pro uh, producer of that ship, everything that they need. Um, and if you don't have that entire supply chain in, uh, in India, you may move the the assembly or the production of the of the sort of top end of of this this uh, production value chain there, but the rest of the supply chain is still in in China. You're no better off. Uh, that and countries like Vietnam, for example, uh, also just have a limited capacity. You know, uh, one of the points I, I make in my writing is that you know China will add in the next three years about 4.2 billion to its economy, 4.2 trillion to its economy, and by 2025. And that is the size of India's economy in 2025. They're gonna add an India to their economy in the next three years. It's a huge economy. Uh, you know, you just can't politically mandate 
that this complicated structure be somehow replicated in economies which are much, much smaller and actually are engaged in different activities right now. So uh, it is a mugs game, uh, and it's as, as far as I can tell, it's not really working. I think what's going to happen is in the uh, critical areas of uh, advanced computer chips, uh, China will eventually catch up. Uh, the West will probably uh, stay advanced on this. But, uh, it, I mean, th how this political relationship unfolds will be the major impact. What's what's happening, of course, is that we're seeing a, a, a serious deterioration in the political relationships, and that's not good for the world. So not only is it not something you see as being effective from the impact on the other side of the ledger, but you've also stated that keeping an economy functioning in the face of supply disruptions means maintaining strategic reserves of energy, staple foods, medical equipment. Even when it comes to something as critical as this, it's a great idea in theory, but it doesn't have a lot of success in practice. So, Michael, on, on the key sort of staple things, we do have strategic reserves and we have emergency preparedness plans. Actually, when I examine the, uh, the plans for uh, a pandemic, uh, we, the ones that we put in place in Canada, they look excellent on paper uh, in terms of having, the, you know, because we went through the SARS-1, right? And, and, uh, and uh, the COVID was just SARS-2. Uh, so same thing just much, much bigger scale. And the reality was that the plans were, were, were excellent. We all thought through, we knew exactly what we needed to have. We just didn't have the scale of preparedness for this new shock. And so we actually wound up having to take a sort of emergency measures to, to, to shut down the economy because we could not supply ourselves with the uh, personal protective equipment at this scale that we needed. Um, but again, that was still a temporary uh, uh, sort of shock. Uh, there was a shockwave through the economy, cost us, but we come out of, at the end of it and we recoup the production that was lost. Uh, and if we look back on it, we would say, what would we have done differently? Well, we would have had a larger scale uh, emergency stock than um, we had. And probably for the next pandemic, if there's one, uh, we will be perhaps better prepared. But of course, the, the next shock may not be a pandemic. The next shock will come from somewhere else. Uh, and it's very hard to be prepared for all these uh, unknown unknowns. <laughs> you have to basically, therefore, uh, be resilient. So we talk about sort of robust and resilience and flexibility of supply chains. And at the firm level, you need options. Right, you need different suppliers to get to uh, who can step forward um, if if one shuts down for whatever reason, and if every firm takes care of business that way, then the whole global network of production will respond resiliently to any shock anywhere, as long as, of course, it's not a you know uh, an extinction event for the whole uh, global economy. Setting that aside for a moment. Um, <laughs> Yeah. If public sector risk calculations sometimes do need to override private sector decisions, whether it be for political or healthcare reasons, um, what's the best way forward without putting the invisible hands of the market in shackles? So and definitely there are uh, cases where uh, there are major externalities that are not 
priced into uh, the internal pricing and considerations of, of, of private firms. And we live actually in an age where these externalities are almost dominant considerations, whether it's climate change uh, uh, or whether it's, of course, the uh, race to dominate AI and, and or to regulate AI. Uh, these are, are, are truly major questions for which require societal responses. Uh, so in such cases, then governments may have to uh, override private decisions and say, like, for the good of all, uh, we all have to take a hit on this or that uh, issue. I would argue certainly the uh, uh, lead in artificial intelligence right now falls into that category for uh, uh, governments around the world. They feel the need that they've got to be, you know, and certainly the major jurisdictions, China and would be there, the U.S. will be there, the European Union will be there. They want to make sure that they're in a position that they are uh, not... Um, falling behind and unable to compete. And so they are all putting in, uh, in play literally hundreds of billions of dollars uh, or, or one or euros to ensure that they've got that foothold and the taxpayer pays. So that's the way it works. The, if you do impose a political uh, 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 mandate for your economy, then that is something that the market would not normally do on its own, you have to pay. And that comes from taxes, and that's unavoidable. Is the World Trade Organization evolving with these shifting trade winds? Uh, the World Trade Organization is moribund. Uh, it's uh, in terms of the, uh, the, the trade war and technology war that's been launched, uh, I think there are some complaints that have been lodged uh, uh, at, at the WTO, but th these are pretty much irrelevant because uh, without an appellate body and, uh, and without agreement of the parties to uh, abide by any panel decision, these, these uh, panel decisions can be uh, uh, appealed into the void, as they say, right? Uh, and so there's you go through the process, but it doesn't have any impact on uh, the actual economy. So the WTO is sidelined. We are now, uh, for much of world trade, okay, if, if we're trading in, um, I don't know, uh, uh, baby prams or whatever, uh, that system is still functioning, is going according to WTO rules, and, uh, and people who are involved in that, if they need to take something to the WTO, it's still being settled amicably. Uh, for the areas where the actual contest is right now, the WTO is sidelined. So we're in, in the Wild West, uh, as it were, in, in that regard. Dan, thank you for your time and insight today. You're most welcome, Michael. Uh, these are exciting and troubling times. Dan Kuriak is a fellow in residence at the C.D. Howe Institute and the director and principal at Kuriak Consulting in Ottawa. Read the expanded verbatim of his presentation to the Trade Policy Research Forum at cdhow.org. Still to come from the C.D. Howe, the Tax Reform Conference, June 14th and 15th at the Institute's Young Street headquarters in Toronto. On day one, personal taxation with Jack Mintz, senior fellow at the Institute and the President's Fellow on the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary, alongside Kevin Hassett, a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. And on day two, business taxation. 
Mintz returns as chair as we hear from speakers including Wayne Adams of the Canadian Tax Foundation, Don Drummond of Queen's University, and Joe Oliver, former Minister of Finance for the Government of Canada. Go to cdhow.org to register. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.